Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Center, or IOWC, at McGill University. I'm joined by Drs. Philip Gooding and Archisman Chowdhury, two postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC. Hi, Renee. Great to see and speak to you again. Hi, Renee. Thank you so much for having me here again. Thanks so much for being here again, guys. Uh, so we'll, you will hear more from them later. But our guest today is Shaila Seshia Galvin, an assistant professor of anthropology and sociology at the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. Professor Galvin has conducted research on themes of agriculture, land and rural development, climate change, environmental policies, globalization, local and international governance, uh, the list goes on, with a primary focus on South Asia. She has published widely on these issues in journals and edited volumes, and has recently completed her book manuscript entitled Becoming Organic, Nature and Agriculture in the Indian Himalaya. Uh, so congratulations, Professor Galvin, for that. Uh, the book or the manuscript will be published by Yale University Press in the spring of 2021. Um, and without further ado, Professor Galvin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so today, Professor Galvin will be discussing some aspects of her research on organic farming of basmati rice from India uh, that has been published in actually two of her journal essays. The first is The Farming of Trust, Organic Certification and the Limits of Transparency in Uttarakhand, India, which was published in American Ethnologist in 2018. And the second is Chains of Meaning, Crops, Commodities, and the In-Between Spaces of Trade, which was published in World Development in 2020, uh, which she actually co-authored with Sarah Osterhout, uh, Dana Graef, Alder Kellerman Saxena, and Michael R. Dove. So these essays explore the theme of environmentally sustainable organic farming of a locally produced rice variety, the basmati rice of Dune Valley in Uttarakhand, India. And they actually explore themes such as how a locally produced commodity acquires new meaning through organic certification procedures and in zones of consumption, as well as what are the socioeconomic and cultural implications of such agrarian practices for sustainable trade and development. Uh, so Shaila, coming back to you, I'm going to start asking you some questions now after this introduction. So could you just tell our listeners what are environmentally sustainable organic farming practices? What was your inspiration behind taking up this research? Uh, what is the importance of organic farming practices in an era of climate change across the world? And what implications do such practices have for staple food crops like rice in the Indian Ocean region and the environment where they are grown? Great, thanks so much, Renee. Um, so I think I'll start by taking up the question of what inspired this research or why I took it up. And the uh, two articles that you mentioned connect to some of the ideas uh, that I develop in my book, uh, which was based on my doctoral research. So that research was inspired by both a curiosity as well as a puzzle. For me, the curiosity was to understand the emergence of organic agriculture in Uttarakhand. Um, now, this is a region of the central Himalaya in India that many people claim has always been organic. 
And so given that when we hear or think of uh, organic agriculture, we often see it in opposition to or as a foil to uh, agricultural industrialization um, or factory farming. I was curious to understand what it might mean to become organic in a region um, that had never been through such transformations, that had never experienced uh, industrialization um, in quite the same way. So when I was doing preliminary research in Uttarakhand in 2005, I learned that Uttarakhand had recently declared its ambition to be uh, India's first organic state. Um, and this was the first time that I, I sort of heard, of, um, heard of, of this development or indeed heard of a state declaring itself uh, to be or to become organic. This piqued my curiosity for a few reasons. Um, first of all, I was aware that Uttarakhand at the time was one of India's newest states. So it was created in the year 2000 uh, after a movement for statehood that in part had been based on um, a sense of, of grievance, if you will, um, or a resistance to the way the region had been made peripheral to um, trajectories and policies of development that had been introduced elsewhere in India. Also the way the region's relation with, um, uh, with the Indian state had at times been one that people had characterized as being based on internal colonialism, um, because of the prevalence of uh, timber extraction and mining, um, in the region. And so there was a sense, a, a kind of palpable sense in those early years that in declaring itself to, to become, its ambition to become organic, Uttarakhand was actually making a claim um, for a different kind of agrarian modernity, right? And one that broke with notions of agricultural modernization um, that had been more prevalent in India during the Green Revolution that were associated with ideas um, and practices of the use of fertilizers, um, intensive irrigation, uh, high-yielding high seed varieties, and that had more recently kind of been expressed through the introduction of GM crops. Um, so what Uttarakhand was trying to do seemed to be quite different historically and in, in the context of wider um, approaches within India to agricultural development at that time. Um, I was also interested to place this formation of Uttarakhand uh, in relation to India's program of economic liberalization and the economic reforms that it had undertaken uh, beginning in the, the very end of the 80s and 1990s. Um, these relations have transformed and brought changes to many things in India, but certainly in the realm of agriculture, uh, they have shifted the kind of relation between the state, both the central state and the subnational states, um, they have shifted, it's shifted their relation to, between these forms of the state and the private sector. Um, and so 
during this period, one has seen the rise of contract farming, uh, changes and reforms to regulations around agricultural marketing, um, to name just, just two. Um, so this kind of convergence on the one hand of a political process of state formation um, and you know, a, a loosely economic, I understand the economic broadly, um, but a process of liberalization uh, was something that, that brought me to think about organic differently and to try and really explore the possibility of provincializing organic. Right of of loosening it from its moorings and its um, its attachments to uh, to being a foil for industrialization or factory farming, and placing it in kind of broader political, historical, and economic terms. Um, this also allowed me this kind of more more broad placement of organic agriculture, I think, allowed me to explore the relation between nature and agriculture in the Himalaya, right? So, so by provincializing organic, it was possible to really think more historically about um, what becoming organic means in this region and to think about how that opens out onto um, the relation between nature and agriculture, which has long been um, an, a contested one, but also very, um, very enduring and important. So um, that curiosity then, as I, as I delved into my fieldwork, um, led to the puzzle that I mentioned. Um, and that was that as I was doing my fieldwork, which took me um, from farmers' fields through bureaucracies in Dehradun, the state capital of Uttarakhand, uh, and New Delhi, um, to rice mills in Haryana. Uh, the kind of interest and curiosity about why organic agriculture was being promoted in Uttarakhand opened out into a broader puzzle about what organic is and what it means to become organic. Um, and as I was doing my research, over that time, I came to see that organic, well, we might tend to think of it as a property of land and produce, um, is perhaps better understood as a diffuse quality. Um, it's a quality that is not readily discernible or sensory in any way. Um, it would be really difficult to distinguish between organic and conventional grains of basmati rice, for example. Um, but organic quality is something that is assembled and it's relational. Um, and so in my work, I traced these practices of assembling organic quality, um, practices that range from constructing compost pits um, to maintaining certification records, um, these took place in settings that were both agrarian, but also institutional and bureaucratic. Um, and as the work on certification sort of suggests, they also took place across broader discursive regulatory and affective registers. Um, so to come back to the question then, um, 
what are environmentally sustainable organic farming practices. In a sense, I feel that there's really no simple answer to that question as my, um, as my response is maybe just made fairly plain. Um, that in Uttarakhand, it was interesting to me that people thought about organic agriculture in two ways. Um, on the one hand, organic agriculture and organic, there was a sense in which um, one could be organic by default. Um, and this was a way, this was in fact almost a kind of branding um, strategy for the region. They really played, uh, the, the Organic Commodity Board really invoked this notion that the region, because precisely because it had been left out of these uh, histories of agricultural modernization, um, that fertilizers uh, and irrigation channels and networks had never been developed in the region, um, that it was organic by default in the sense that farmers continued to rely on um, livestock manure and crop residues to restore the fertility of their fields, um, that they practiced mixed cropping, um, and that's, that there was a sense in which this was a region that had always been organic by default. So while this was used on the one hand as a, you know, as a way of marking and, and in a sense repositioning the region's agrarian history, um, it was also used to distinguish uh, farmers who were organic by default from those who the state recognized to be organic by design. And by organic by design, what was kind of being referenced was um, the, the take up of and, and the enrollment in certification programs, um, the uh, entry into contract farming arrangements, um, forms of, uh, even forms of composting and the adoption of composting technologies that were taken to be not done by default, but really the result of kind of conscious intention, um, a deliberateness um, that's, that, I, that I argue um, was a form of agrarian agency that was legible, recognizable to the state. Um, so you could say that both of these forms of practice, right, being organic by default or being organic by design, they both have the potential to be environmentally sustainable, right, in the sense of, um, you know, lessening uh, reliance on energy, fossil fuel intensive um, fertilizers, uh, and, and so on. But I think the, the point to note, um, or one of the points that I'm interested in, is that only some farmers are recognized as organic in Uttarakhand, right? Those who are organic by design. Um, and those who are organic by default may be in effect practicing farming um, in fairly similar ways, but are not, not accorded the recognition of being organic. Thank you, Professor Galvin. That's very interesting. So Arjusman, do you have any questions for Dr. Galvin? 
Um, thank you, Rennie, and thank you, Professor Galvin. I find your ethnographic study of organic farming of basmati rice in Uttarakhand uh, in northern India quite intriguing. And I would like to ask you two questions. Firstly, your research tells us that the story of organic farming in Dune Valley in Uttarakhand is far from uniform, uh, both in terms of the cropping area that is covered by organic farming across the villages and also in terms of the involvement in organic farming of basmati rice by different professional groups, which include retired soldiers, teachers, bankers, insurance executives, and farmers. Uh, could you elaborate on how cropping area in a village is shared between organic and non-organic farming of rice? And are there clear demarcations of fields between organic and non-organic crops, even among families who practice both kinds of farming? Thanks so much for that question. Um, so the decision to farm organically uh, was part of, it, it was one um, of many decisions that farmers have to make, right? About which seeds to plant uh, in how much area. Um, so the question to, to farm organically uh, is part of a, that larger, larger repertoire of, of decision-making. When I conducted my um, main, main uh, stint of fieldwork in 2000, and, well, between 2005 uh, and until the end of 2008, um, most farmers in the Dune Valley were, were practicing both. Um, so although these were relatively small landholdings, um, certainly by North American standards, um, most of these farms were less than two hectares in size. Um, most, the majority of these farmers were growing basmati, both conventionally um, and, and through the organic program. Um, it is true that standards for organic production um, and India has a national program on organic production that that delineates organic standards. Um, and these are the standards that farmers in Uttarakhand must adhere to. Uh, they're also very comparable to standards you would find in other countries. Um, so across the board, it is true that there is a way in which um, there is an effort to demarcate organic and conventional or non-organic cultivation um, through through the elaboration of standards. So just to give two examples, um, one example of the way this, this separation might be or is uh, implemented is through a prohibition on parallel production, which means that a farmer can't grow the same variety of a crop both organically and conventionally. Um, so this is to avoid the possibility that they might get mixed or confused. Um, similarly, there's a regulation on buffer zones, which stipulates that there needs to be some effort to separate uh, organic and conventional plots of land. 
So on the surface, it seems that standards appear to make this kind of demarcation very explicit and clear. Um, it seems very black and white. But in practice, the distinction is not so evident. Um, so in looking at the organic standards, not only of India, but also of the US um, and other countries, uh, the standard on buffer zones, for example, doesn't stipulate, a, it doesn't specify a distance. Um, so there's no kind of spatial demarcation of what constitutes a sufficient buffer zone. This is something that's left to the certification inspection and the certification inspector to determine. And, you know, if you think about it, this is also something that could vary depending on the features of the agricultural landscape that you're in. Um, so in, in the Dune Valley, for example, things like um, elevation differences uh, between plots of land, because this is a, it can be a hilly region, um, even things like wind direction and the ways in which wind tends to blow um, were all factors that were taken into account in determining what what could constitute um, or what would constitute an adequate buffer zone. Um, and so this was actually one of the things that made me come to realize that organic is again less perhaps less well understood as a property or an essence um, but rather it's a quality and a quality that's assembled and made through particular practices. Thank you Professor Galvin. Uh, my second question uh, relates to your argument about how the inadequate nature of governmental surveillance has led uh, government officials in the Dune Valley to term organic farming of basmati rice as Vishwaski Kheti or a matter of trust between the organic board and the farmers. And it's a practice where usually uh, compliance or non-compliance with agrarian regulations of organic farming allows the inspection officials to judge the moral character of farmers. In this context, I was wondering if you could tell us about how farmers themselves perceive organic farming. As you have argued, between 2008 and 2016, the number of farmers registered with each of the four federations responsible for organic farming of basmati rice dwindled to less than 100 due to issues like delayed remuneration to farmers, low yields of the organic crop, insufficient monetary assistance from the government to cover costs of production, and a lack of enthusiasm among farmers to engage with the practice of entering diaries and or, or government protocols. So given such declining numbers, could you please elaborate on how farmers perceive organic farming of basmati rice? Is it seen more as a way that is financially unviable for them and more suited to richer sections of the society? Yeah, so it is true um, that farmers had a range of responses to, to their enrollment in organic farming. Um, some farmers embraced 
uh, and really welcomed the introduction of certified organic farming. Um, many of these farmers, as you mentioned, had been perhaps retired army personnel, uh, retired teachers, um, bank managers, and so on. So this meant not only were they um, wealthier uh, and had more capital to invest in becoming organic, uh, but they also had some of the other qualities that are actually helpful when one's trying to become organic by design, right? They had, they were, they had literacy skills. Um, they had experience writing and keeping regular re records. Uh, their professions uh, meant that they had a certain facility interacting with government officials and bureaucrats, um, with representatives from private companies and so on. So these farmers who, who really welcomed the introduction of certified organic farming um, did so not purely for financial motives, um, but also because it accorded them a recognition of their, their labor um, and their identity as cultivators, as farmers, um, that was different from the kind of identity that has often been ascribed to the Uttarakhand farmer as, uh, as being on the margins of modernity, right? Becoming organic allowed them to claim uh, a certain kind of agrarian modernity. Others, though, others of a similar kind of professional background um, and with similar sets of skills and experience became disillusioned for the reasons that, um, that you mentioned and that I described in the article. So the fact that payments um, didn't, didn't come on time, for example, or were delayed was a really important reason why some felt um, that they didn't want to continue with the program. Indeed, for some of them, um, particularly for those who were economically well off, who couldn't withstand a delay um, of six months to be to be paid for their patty. Um, this this was more important, but more broadly, there was a sense of a betrayal of an agreement, a betrayal of the contract. Right, that they had contracted and they had actually physically handed over their patty, um, and then uh, a trust had been breached when the payment that they were promised was delayed in in arriving. Um, and finally, the other kind of response that is important to mention is that certainly for some farmers, becoming organic was not an option for them at all. Um, here, I think there, there are certainly questions of wealth, um, but in the Dune Valley uh, and elsewhere in Uttarakhand, this also intersects strongly with caste. Um, and so particularly uh, lower caste farmers who, who had usually smaller uh, parcels of land um, found it more difficult to, to become organic. They didn't have the capital um, necessary to invest. Um, and another significant issue for them was 
that as low caste um, being marked by a low caste position, they often had to labor in the fields of wealthier dominant caste farmers. Um, and so they were spread between both working their own land and working on the land of higher castes. And because organic farming uh, is typically more labor intensive, right? It requires manual weeding, uh, for example, these um, poorer or more low caste farmers um, were less able to, to really meet the demands that being organic by design um, asked of them. Thank you, Professor Galvin. I will now pass it over to Philip to ask questions. Thanks, Archisman. And uh, thank you, Professor Galvin, for your really interesting discussion. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions that build on Archisman's last question. Um, in your analysis of organic farming of basmati rice from India and its exports, you argue that locally produced organic commodities have specific historical and cultural meanings, as well as botanical and ecological traits that may push back trade initiatives. In Uttarakhand, the delimitation of basmati's physical characteristics for export as an organically farmed rice has led to a resurgence in locally produced varieties that do not fit the export standards, but are traded in domestic circuits. Um, I just wondered, could you elaborate on this development? Does this resurgence include producers who had been earlier involved in organic farming of basmati rice, but have later shifted to growing non-organic varieties of the crop? Yes, so um, indeed, as I was conducting my research in Uttarakhand and in the Dune Valley about organic basmati, I, I also became um, quite intrigued about basmati rice itself. Um, the Dune Valley in Uttarakhand is a region that has long been famed and famous for its basmati rice. Um, but in the 20th century, particularly in the, the second half of the 20th century, uh, it's called the cultivation of basmati dwindled. Um, this was as farmers took up to some degree um, higher yielding varieties of rice that, um, that were released in the later decades of the 20th century. So introduction of organic agriculture in the in the early 2000s represented for many a kind of renaissance of basmati in the Dune Valley. It's kind of reintroduction in the, in the Dune Valley. Um, but for organic basmati to be sold as such, it could not be just classified as organic. It also had to meet export standards for basmati rice itself, right? It had to be both organic and it had to be um, basmati. Um, so to say that basmati rice has to be basmati sounds a bit obvious, um, but really this meant meeting these export quality standards. So these were standards about things like the length of the uncooked grain, the length of the cooked grain, the length breadth ratio, the percentage of admixtures, um, the color of the grain, and so on. Um, and as you can imagine, this only added 
for, for a number of farmers, this only added to the challenges of producing basmati organically, because not only did they have to produce it organically, they also had to produce it to meet these quality standards. Um, and so at the same time as farmer, farmers were sort of facing these challenges, um, consumers and residents of in Daradun were finding it difficult to to buy Daradun basmati rice in Daradun because it was being exported, right? Because it was being grown for, for export. And so at a certain moment um, when, when there was a level of dissatisfaction with the contract arrangements on the one hand and um, a search for kind of authentic basmati rice by residents in the Dune Valley, um, these other kind of circuits and forms of exchange uh, began to develop. Um, and this, this is, as you said, led to the, the creation um, of more direct kind of producer consumer relations where literally people would, residents of Daradun would drive out to farms uh, outside the city and buy directly from, from some of these farmers. Thank you, Professor Galvin. Um, my next and I suppose final question relates to the larger political, economic and social implications of organic farming of basmati rice in India and Pakistan. You've argued that while the use of geographical indication tags or GI tags protects the distinctiveness of organic commodities in domestic and international markets. It also excludes many local varieties that do not meet the GI and export standards and are upheld as examples of disappearing agricultural biodiversity. Have there been efforts by environmental NGOs, food processing and export companies or agricultural scientists to argue in favor of a more inclusive framework of trade in organically farmed products? where commodities that are otherwise excluded in national or international GI tags can feature and be exported as examples of distinct cultural or culinary identity. So um, it is true that both um, the geographic indication for basmati as well as the concern more broadly about agricultural biodiversity have been um, areas that have generated quite some mobilization and debate. Um, what I've found, however, is that the geographic indication for Basmati, in a sense, nationalizes it as Indian um, and excludes local cultivars um, that do not meet the standards of the geographical indication. Um, so this, this occurs uh, in, in the way the geographic indication is constructed um, and the fact that, that in its current form, uh, it's limited to government notified varieties. So government notified varieties are varieties that were developed um, in either public or private sector plant breeding programs. Um, and those varieties are also varieties that meet export quality standards in terms of the length, the length breadth ratio, et cetera. Um, so in that sense, the geographical indication is constructed on top of 
of these already existing lists and standards um, that give entry um, and admit the GI admits within it certain certain varieties of basmati, um, but necessarily excludes others. Local cultivars of basmati, for example, don't meet often don't meet uh, the export quality standards. Um, in the Dune Valley, this was often because the grain was too short um, and too thick. So even though it expanded when it was cooked and kind of looked more like basmati when it was cooked, um, it, because it didn't prior to cooking, uh, it wasn't recognized by scientific communities um, or by the government uh, as basmati. Um, and here it's also, I think, worth noting that, that there is a, a relationship between these agricultural scientific communities and the government uh, in the construction of these standards uh, in the first place, right? That, that this, this was also something that agricultural scientists participated in, um, in developing. Um, so I would say, though, because Basmati in India has had this longer history, um, particularly with the patent dispute in the late 1990s with the U.S. company RiceTech, um, where uh, this U.S. company tried to patent uh, uh, Basmati, um, and in a sense, because there is, is this sort of national history of, uh, of biopiracy, right? A sense where Basmati was going to be claimed by an American company. At a certain level, the geographical indication was a victory, right? That no, now um, American companies and foreign companies can't come in and claim Basmati um, as theirs. Um, and to some extent that, you know, that, that is true. GI is a form of intellectual property protection. Um, and it does, it will help ensure that these varieties can't be um, claimed or patented by others. But at the same time, it is important to realize too that GIs are designed primarily for trade purposes. They exist um, within the WTO they're designed to facilitate trade, to protect the economic value of regionally distinctive products. They're not designed necessarily to protect agricultural biodiversity. Um, and so for that reason, they may be less effective at doing so. Um, but it's also interesting, I think, that for the moment anyway, um, there don't seem to have been the kinds of mobilizations to defend or protect local cultivars of basmati um, that there were for, for the kind of larger um, identity of defense of the identity of basmati and, and heritage ownership of, of basmati itself. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Professor Galvin. Um, that finishes my question, so I'm now going to pass back to Rene to uh, wrap up. Thanks so much, Philip. Um, and thank you, Professor Galvin, for your wonderful work and for answering all of our questions. We actually just recently published a podcast that we recorded with Professor Anna Winterbottom about the patenting of organic biomes concerning biopiracy uh, surrounding the neem plant, which our listeners can actually find on our Praising Risk website. 
So it's interesting that you mentioned that and uh, quite fitting in the uh, progress of our podcast upload. So thank you. On behalf of all of us, we'd like to wish you good luck with the publication of your manuscript. We very much look forward to hearing about it and perhaps reading it. And thank you so much to Philip and Archisman for their questions and for joining us today. And thank you to you, our listeners, for downloading and for listening. Once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.